0: Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, First, I would be remiss if I did not mention, if you are a startup and you're looking for excellent entry-level talent, pick up a Praxis Apprentice. We will send you some top-notch people, And we work with them to get them ready to succeed at your business from day one and then apprentice there for six months. So go to discoverpraxis.com. And if you're a young person looking to get started in your career, degree or not, you can be an apprentice. Also go to discoverpraxis.com. So today I have with me David Vexler. And David is a futurist, software developer, free market radical, and father of a little girl. David, welcome.
1: Hey, Isaac. uh, Awesome to talk to you.
0: Yeah, you as well. So, David, um, a little bit more on the the background. So, David has a a sort of full time job with a title that you could find on LinkedIn. He is a the director of um, technology. I might be getting the title wrong at the Foundation for Economic Education. But he actually every bit of his paycheck from his normal job goes to his broker. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And when he needs to eat, uh, you know, pay rent, consumption goods. He does side gigs in order to earn his living. So his full, his full um, you know, sort of set income from his official job goes to investments and his living expenses are all covered through gigs, which is really interesting. And I definitely want to get into all that, but I would like to kind of start earlier, start at the beginning. So tell me a little bit um, of you know, your past, where you grew up and how you kind of got into technology and how you got into how you became a free market radical.
1: Sure, Isaac. Well, if we go way back, I was born in Ukraine in the 80s. And uh, that's where I grew up until just before the USSR fell apart, which is when I moved to Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and went that's, to... That's a pretty
0: su- radical switch.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. The most radical thing for me at the time was the heat, getting out of the airplane and going from um, Ukraine to middle of the summer in Texas. That was, that was a physical and mental shock so yeah then um i've been working in technology and marketing for the last of uh, 13 years
0: how how old were you when you left the ukraine i was uh 10 years old okay and was that was that a challenge for your family to get out of the ukraine what was that process like
1: it, it was a challenge so i think if i remember correctly um reagan at the uh, sometime before that pushed for, for 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 Jews in the USSR to have more open immigration policies and we were basically in the last uh, surge of immigrants that left the country b- Before immigration was tightened again. They said "Oh, Russia is not free and um, there were a lot more restrictions after that So I remember being interviewed by the local news station in San Antonio about um, our experience um, in ukraine as it was moving towards independence from the ussr and i remember uh, the first elections basically that were held in 70 plus years of communist rule in ukraine um arguing for independence and so the, that was the kind of the environment that was going on when i when he flew out of the country
0: and how did your parents choose um san antonio Well, uh,
1: you know, I'm not sure exactly because I was quite young, but basically it was um, just luck. Uh, We needed a sponsoring organization, and one of the refugee groups um, happened to have a space in Texas, and we agreed, of course. A lot of it actually had to do with my father's – he loves John Wayne movies. He likes Westerns. (laughs) He really wanted to be a cowboy, and so he thought Texas was awesome. And, And, you know, in fact, now he has a big truck. You know, he has his boots. He uh, has a hat. uh, has has his uh, six shooter. So um, he's not a cowboy. He's an electrician. He owns an electrical company, but he's living the dream.
0: That is the absolutely the American dream. That's (laughs) that is amazing. But you know, it's interesting. It kind of speaks to the power of artistic representations and and kind of content that goes beyond direct intellectual argument and the influence it has. This is something I've always been fascinated with how so many communist countries did not just ban, you know, free market textbooks or, you know, Milton Friedman talks, Mm -hmm. but they banned the art, the artistic productions, jazz music and Western rock and roll music. Because even those, even when they're non-explicitly political, something about letting people experience on an aesthetic level the beauty created by a free market makes them sort of want to escape, want to leave there, you know?
1: Yes, and the way that my dad got into this was when he was, you know, in his 20s, he started smuggling bootleg uh, Beatles albums. Uh, I guess this was in the 60s and 70s. And he starts smuggling... Would like albums, copying them on his um, this reel-to-reel player and then selling them. This was in Ukraine, you know, when uh, Western rock music was illegal. And then, you know, he just got started in this, in this underground uh, market of smuggled Western media. And from Western music, he moved to Radio Free America. And so mm-hmm. growing up in the 80s, I remember every weekend listening to Radio Free America, which is of course illegal and the, the radios were illegal. So you had to either modify or smuggle one in. Uh, listening every weekend to Radio Free America stories from outside the wall.
0: That is absolutely amazing. That is, that is the kind of rebellious entrepreneurial <laughs> heroism that gives me chills. Uh, so, okay, I'm beginning to see the seeds of your radical free market beliefs. Tell me a little bit more as you as you grew, how you sort of got interested in the world of ideas, and what led you down this path, your intellectual journey. Mm-hmm.
1: How I got into ideas, I think, had a lot to do with speech and debate. So mm. in high school, um, I had, you know, I had a difficult time socially transitioning to the U.S. Uh, I was always different in Ukraine. I was beat up as a kid because I was a Jew and. Um, you know, people threw rocks at our house and beat me up. And um, I, you know I, I lived in a small farming village where I was very culturally isolated. Um, these all these traditional farmers around me and me being this Jewish parents are school teachers, it was different. And in the us, I moved to we were very poor immigrants. So I moved to a very poor neighborhood, bad inner city school at first. And I was isolated. I had social anxiety, really bad stutter, which runs in the family. So um, I turned to books. I read a lot. I was, well, I still am obsessed with science fiction. And to deal with my stuttering and social anxiety, I joined speech and debate. Hmm. And that's where I started reading all these, um, you know, speech and debate, you have to prepare a case to argue an argument for or against something, and you have to do a lot of research. It's kind of silly, the arguments you use, but you have to research current events and philosophy, and you have to make political arguments. Um, And that's why I got into ideas, but it was very left-oriented. You know, the professors that teach speech and debate are inevitably very, you know, let's say, anti-capitalist. And um, let's see. So, yeah, so it was not until college that I met my first libertarian friend, totally by accident. I was looking for friends at school and met somebody who was libertarian, and she suggested that I read Ayn Rand. And I happened to take my first economics class at the same time. And I'm not sure which is which, my friend, um, the economics class or reading Ayn Rand, um, I think it was actually mostly the economics class. The first time I'd actually heard the idea that, um, you know, the the invisible hand, the fact that prices are not arbitrary, but set by consumer demand and and production costs. And so I think that all that experience uh, totally transformed my ideas my freshman year of college so Mm -hmm. that... You know, b- by the end of it, I uh, was I started an objectivist club. I started a libertarian club, and I became an activist at, at the end of that year.
0: What were you studying in college?
1: Uh, my first year, I was studying aerospace engineering, which I, I uh, dropped out of at the end of that year, and I switched to economics and political science.
0: what What was the genesis of you know sort of choosing aerospace engineering and then deciding not to to do that? Aerospace engineering.
1: It was just a cool thing as a kid, you know, go into space, design airplanes. Uh, well, as a as a kid, I actually built these um, rubber band powered submarines. Uh, that, that were really cool. You put them in the water, you'd, you know, turn the rubber band, and they would swim underwater and then come up. And then I designed my own planes from balsa wood. Um, so I love building things, and I thought I never really thought about how practical this is. If I'm personally suited for this, it was like I need a major. I like planes, spaceships are awesome. (laughs) I'll go into airspace. Um, Yeah, it turned out that I'm not actually very good in physics in particular. (laughs) And also advanced calculus, I really struggled with those two things in particular. And um, my motivations were very uh, misdirected my freshman year. Can I say that? I partied way too much, didn't get enough sleep. Um, Chasing girls, not really focused on the things that take for aerospace engineering to be a uh, successful. So yeah, uh, then, then how I got into economics, again, not lot I thought went into this. I just was becoming libertarian and I thought, you know, if you're libertarian, if you care about Austrian economics, uh, why don't I go into economics and politics? And that's what I did.
0: So what did, where did you get the interest in technology and start getting into software development and all that?
1: Yeah, so my parents, um, again, were, were poor immigrants, didn't really have money to pay for me to go to school, so I needed a job. And so I took a job my sophomore year working for the Texas A&M University Library uh, on the help desk. And at the time, we didn't have help desk software. We had to – I forget what we did, but we had to like, either write it on Excel or on paper or just in our heads that the help desk – the tickets that came in. Uh, it was just requests, not even tickets, and so I built a ticketing system out of uh, if you if you're into tech, it was a classic VB script. And my boss told me, build a system for tracking all the requests that are coming in from our staff librarians. And I said, I don't know how to. I don't know how to, anything about programming. And he said, Look, you know, you're here four hours a day. Just you know, use half your time to build a system. And I said, well, you know, I, I really pushed back. I remember this. I was kind of like freaking out. Why is he asking me to do this? I have no idea how to write code. And he said, look, just try it. You know, here's some books. Just try it. And somehow I learned how to program totally by myself, just reading some books and uh, articles online and built a desk system.
0: So did you know after you, after you did that project, did you fall in love with programming? Did you say, wow, I want to do more of this? Or, or was it kind of like just sort of by necessity?
1: You know, I think it was an observation that, hey, I'm good at software, I'm okay at economics, I'm not really passionate about it, politics, also not passionate about, this is something I'm good at, like something I can pursue. Again, when I was graduating, I had no idea uh, what to do with my degrees, and so I decided to stay in school longer until I could, could figure out what to do. And so I got a master's in information systems, because I was good at programming, and I got a, a job um, building an apartment matching system for college students for the university. <laughs> and that was really how I built some solid skills. You know, because I was building a application that and users had real stakeholders, and really that really stretched me. And that really was the foundation of solid skills, not a useless uh, graduate degree in patient systems. W-
0: was that a well-defined project ahead of time or was it kind of, hey, how about you try doing this and you sort of made it up as you went?
1: Uh, it was not well-defined in terms of requirements, but they were stakeholders because for some reason the university had staff who helped people find apartments. And so I could interview them and ask them, what are students looking for? How do they uh, find roommates? And they also informed me that there's some things you are and are not legally allowed to ask when you're finding a roommate, <laughs> etc. Yeah, this was a while ago, in 2003. And um, yeah, but it was just me. I had no idea what I was doing. But because I had people I could talk to, you know, that cared about this product and, and pushed me to m- make a quality product, I was able to build a good system. And, you know, it's still, if you search for Aggie Search, it's still
0: running. So I want to zoom out for a second because a lot of young people feel this pressure in high school and then post high school, if they're in college or whatever, to, to figure out what they want to do. And they've got to pick their career and they've got to go do all the right things to make sure they can do it. You, you went into aerospace because you thought it was cool and then realized that wasn't for you. And so then you just sort of picked economics, political science because it was enjoyable. You liked it but you ended up just sort of through happenstance and, and getting a project at a job that you did learning some coding. And then you you decided to pursue that and ended up doing some more, um, you know, projects in jobs. And now, you know, where you are now, you do marketing software development. You've got sort of a really interesting and, and diverse life. I, I would think that, you know, any young person looking at your life would say, Oh, that that's a really cool, I would love to be where he is someday. But at any point, would it have been possible for you to sort of envision what you're doing now or plot a path to it? Or was it just kind of you sort of go through and take the the best opportunity that comes in in the near term? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yes. Taking opportunities is definitely essential. Actually, my current title is Director of Marketing. Four months ago, I was Director of Technology. Now, there's no way that I would have thought that... Uh, I could just just like that switch my role from mark from technology to marketing, just inconceivable to me a year ago. Uh, I've always thought of myself somebody that hates sales, somebody that is um, not antisocial but just not very social, not doesn't have you know especially good insight into what motivates people. But um, I, I just followed what made sense to me one step at a time, and here I'm doing marketing every day. Uh, so yeah, you, you don't you don't, it's, it's useless to try to imagine what you're going to do in 10 years.
0: What would you say, you know, was there any, any sort of approach or mindset you had that helped you kind of take advantage of the opportunities in front of you, even if they didn't look like what you would have expected ahead of time? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one key thing is, um, you know, when you have a job, you have to do your job, but if you see an opportunity. And that's something that you would enjoy doing and something that you, th- you think will stretch you and give you some very useful skills, you have to take it. So um, just recently here where I work at the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, we didn't have anybody marketing. We had initiatives by various departments that were not really aligned. We were not cross-selling our uh, products to the different customer bases we had. Uh, we had a lot of manual emailing and messaging that was going on. We weren't effectively uh, using social media. We weren't advertising in social media. Um, we had a large marketing budget that was not being used. So all of those things were just opportunities that I came across, and I said, "Somebody needs to do this," and I have time, so I'll just take on this role. And before I knew it, I was
0: uh, director of marketing. That that kind of "why not me" mindset. It's so crucial. I mean, it goes back to that first job that you described where your boss said, hey, why don't you build this thing? And you know, you said, well, I don't even have any programming skills, but just figure it out. And once you realize that's possible and you sort of realize nobody else knows what they're doing, no one knows exactly how to do things, when you see something that needs to be done, whether it's a business opportunity or an opportunity within an organization, instead of saying, man, it would be nice if we had this, being able to trans, you know, translate that into, hey, Why don't I go ahead and build this? Um, That's a really powerful thing. Yes. Yeah. And you have to know what is something you can tackle and some some things you you
1: cannot tackle. Some things are just when it comes to dealing with a bureaucracy or or there's, there's a process that a lot of people really attach to. It's just not a fight, not worth fighting. But when it's in the organization's interest and in your interest, then you should definitely pursue it.
0: Do you have any examples of a fight not worth fighting, something that you've, you know, attempted in your career that really wasn't, um, you know, wasn't worth it?
1: Uh, Sure. So I lived in China for five years working in technology also. And um, we were trying to figure out um, why. um, So to give a little background, my job was working managing software teams that wrote software for schools that taught English. And so it was over 300 different schools in different countries, and they all had a common technology infrastructure. And they had really bad internet, uh, which is important because um, we used, the, the internet contained the curriculum, and that's where teachers recorded the, t- the grades, and they also showed videos to the kids. And so I did site visits to figure out why things weren't working. And um, I came to the site, and I saw that the The servers were no good; they were badly configured, and the Wi-Fi the schools had installed was not good. And so, um, you know, at first I was like, I was almost angry that this is really bad technology choices. Somebody's not paying attention, and I was going to, you know, take on this fight. But, um, you know, I would have to go against the CTO first of all. Me as I was an architect, software architect. He was not really receptive to my ideas. I knew that already. And there would be a major change costing like a million dollars to redo the whole architecture. And so it was just too big of a fight to take on. And there were a lot of people that were uh, a lot of vendors that were really committed to to keep selling um, my company the same bad hardware. And so the whole thing was just too much of a fight to take on. And so I decided to pass that on and focus on something that I could actually make a difference in
0: it's always hard to find that line where, cause I think it's easy to assume everything is too big of a fight to take on or everything is too big of a project and to, to give yourself permission to say, no, somebody can do this. Why, why can't I is a huge step, but it, it's sometimes hard to know when things are worth ignoring and the the, well, the number of things you can ignore that really, you know, are just going to be a time suck is the, the the number of things you can add to that list that you don't want to focus on at all frees you up to be better at the few things that you can focus on but it's hard to make those decisions i'll tell you what i did do is so i noticed that my company had really bad it
1: infrastructure we had our own physical data warehouse we had our own um data center uh, which didn't really make sense because we were not that big of a company but in any case i started hosting my own applications in the amazon cloud so i completely bypassed the uh, company's infrastructure and hosted it myself And at first it was non-business critical applications because that's what I could get approval for. Um, Because I showed that it was like a 10th of the cost to host it in Amazon and the lead time to set up infrastructure in the the cloud is seconds versus sometimes months to to get a physical server ordered for one application, in a data center. And so I just, I didn't say your whole data center idea is terrible, you know, tear it down. I just hosted my own stuff in the Amazon cloud which was a challenge in itself to get that approved. But in any case, um, I sidestepped. It was a great success. It was a lot cheaper, it ran fast. I could make changes you know, immediately, didn't have to go through the bureaucracy, didn't have to order new hardware. And before I knew it, we were spending many dozens of dollars every month mm-hmm. in the cloud because everyone else wanted on this. also. They could um, get things done a lot faster than ha- going through the traditional IT physical data center route. And I was put in charge of uh, making a proposal for the whole company on uh, the cloud strategy to use and the cloud providers to use. And that's actually how I became an architect, a software architect that is, I was a developer before and how I built uh, credibility and experience in uh,
0: running large IT projects. I'm going to use, this is going to be a great, maybe a little bit, a a bit of a stretch. I'm going to use that example as a transition to what I want to talk about next, which is personal finance, because that example really embodies the principle of show, don't tell. So don't tell me, Hey, here's how we should be doing things. Show me, use a small little example. Hey, I'm doing this little thing in, you know, the cloud with Amazon. Let me show you how it works and then use that to convince you to go a little further and do a little more. And the power of demonstrating, showing rather than just telling, that's actually sort of indirectly how what made me wanna wanna say I need to get David on, on the podcast because I, I'm on Facebook quite a bit. I pop on and off throughout the day. And I've started to see a lot of posts from you about mm-hmm. personal finance and really provocative, really interesting stuff. I never, you know, saw a title or a, a, on, on LinkedIn or on your bio that said, you know, personal financial advisor. There was no, you know, there was no official stamp saying this is what David Vexler does. But you just start talking about your own personal approach to finance. You sort of mm-hmm. show it. you're very open with sharing, you know, the apps you use, the way that you invest money, the the thoughts you have on that stuff. And just seeing, and really this, this theme is big, I noticed with all of your stuff, show your work. I mean, you've got posts about detailed diagrams of how you built fees, um, online architecture and how it compares to other projects you've worked on and kind of just sharing very openly your body of work, leaving this kind of digital footprint of who you are, what you're interested in. And it's, it's very easy to piece together all the different things that you have abilities in and to kind of... You know, get an idea of what you're all about and what you're good at because you're, you're showing your work all the time on blog posts and on Facebook and being very open about that. I think that's a really powerful principle. Yeah, I think it's very important to communicate your work, to find some avenue to communicate it for a number of
1: reasons. First of all, because I need to speak about my work internally where I work. I need to speak about my work with partners, with, with, with the um, um, clients or vendors that I work with. And so the exercise of writing it down is important. Um, sometimes I'll post something on Facebook about what I'm doing and then later on, I'm saying the same thing to, to, a, to a partner of, of my employer. And so it's, it's important for that reason. It's important to always be networking because you have no idea where your career will take you. Um, and it's important just to have good communication skills. Um, and if your, your job doesn't naturally and doesn't actually lead you to to writing every day. Then you have to find some opportunity to write and communicate,
0: yeah. I mean, just you know, seeing a title that says software Architect or Marketing Director, it communicates something, but I don't exactly know what that means. Seeing a series of articles where you're describing, here's how I implemented the following mm-hmm. solution that has so much power, that digital footprint. we're really big about on that in praxis that we live in an age where, you know, third party validation of your skill and ability is less valuable than ever because something better is now available. You can now demonstrate your ability and skill directly by sharing the kinds of projects you do and things you work on and kind of getting out of that getting out of that mindset that says, I, I got to sort of do everything behind the scenes until it's all perfect. And I don't want the world to see, but instead kind of openly sharing, hey, I'm trying to transition my company from MailChimp to HubSpot. Here's what we did. Here's a screen capture video of it. Here's a diagram. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it demonstrates, oh, okay, that's the kind of work that this person does. And that communicates so much more than just a line on LinkedIn or, or a resume. So um, that's, a, that's a great lesson.
1: Yeah, I mean, four months ago, I had not um, – I've never had a marketing goal in my whole life. I, I had done it, but, but I never had – there's no record of me doing any marketing. But since I started doing it, every week I'll write something about my strategy, my thinking. And because I do that, I have something to, to show to others. But also, I can talk intelligently because I've had to sit down and, and structure my thoughts and write down the strategy. I can talk to somebody intelligently about, you know, what is the marketing strategy – you know what are the different avenues need to uh, you know need to be on. You know what are what is essential here. So having that experience is important, not just to have that body of work, but to organize your thoughts and be able to communicate them when you need to.
0: So let's talk about personal finance. I've loved your Facebook posts about this, and they seem to generate a lot of um, comments, sometimes heated comments, <laughs> and uh, and debate. You've had a lot of interesting things uh, posts about home ownership is pretty much a bad idea for most people, especially in the first you know half of their life or so. Uh, it's definitely overrated. Investing in the stock market, um, it's not just this thing that's always gonna increase in value. It's oftentimes, uh, there's a lot of myths around it. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to, you know, learn to do gig work and side work and to have multiple ways of earning income, managing your spending habits, tracking your budget, a lot of this stuff. How did you get interested in uh, sort of a two-part question? How'd you get interested in personal finance and um, kind of myth busting around some of the common tropes? And then what made you decide to share openly about that kind of thing? Because that's a little bit more personal for a lot of people. They feel, mm-hmm. you know, okay, I'll blog about my work as a, as a, you know, marketing director or an IT person, but about my own personal finances and about the, how much money I invest, that just feels mm-hmm. a little personal. So how'd you get into that stuff? And what made you decide to start sharing about that?
1: So a bit of uh, background, about my financial history, when we came from Ukraine, we were very poor, extremely poor. We lived in a, uh, a uh, tiny apartment in a really bad part of town. Uh, we, you know, we could afford, we couldn't afford anything. My parents worked initially, you know, washing dishes, et cetera. And so I grew up with very little money. And now I'm not sure how that shaped me, but I, I paid my own way through college, living also very cheaply. And so somehow I learned to, to live, you know, very efficiently. And, um, uh, so I had a lot of savings and I started investing in the stock market through a broker up to the end of 2008, uh, just, just to have something to do with my savings. And this I in lost-
0: individual stocks or in mutual funds or- It was individual stocks
1: and it was highly leveraged. Hmm. And so I lost over 60% in 2008 of my money. <sighs> so again, I grew up very poor and somehow learned to be efficient in my money and had a high savings rate, had a nice job. Lost the vast majority um, of my money. And that's when I got completely disillusioned with experts, with financial experts. Because this guy, who I trusted, I lost the vast majority. And I said, okay, I'm going to start investing myself in the market. So I started in early t- t- 2009. And that first year, I had a return of, I believe, was uh, 66% in that first year of investing. Uh, you know, it was a it was a good time. But that gave me a lot of confidence that I could do this myself.
0: Where, where did so, you go? What like what was your strategy? And where, <clears throat> where did you go to, to study up and educate yourself on um, what your strategy and approach was going to be? Um, I read Peter Schiff. Uh, I forget what his book was, but he, he he had a number of books that I read.
1: And uh, I learned about value investing. Value investing is a strategy that um, has been on for a long time, looking at fundamentals of, of stocks. And so I just focused on, um, long, long-term investing and not trying to time the market. And uh, my strategy was basically very simple, one-third domestic, one-third national, and one-third alternative such as real estate, um, gold mining, stocks, et cetera. And that did quite well. And minimizing costs by, by not paying a broker fees, not paying for mutual funds, just buying ETFs. You know, I, I don't have a particular source that I learned this from, I just kind of read online and got an idea. And figured out the best thing is, don't try to time the market. Maximize your savings rate. Um, have a diversified portfolio, etc. And so that's what I've been doing since two thousand and nine, and I've done quite well, I think.
0: What What do you use? What platform do you use to you know buy and sell? And are you, are you actively, you know, are you kind of day trading or swing trading, or are you just continuing to put? more money into sort of the same portfolio of investments and and you know hope that they grow over the long term what's what's your you know on the technical side what platform do you use and on sort of the strategic side how active are you in buying and selling
1: sure so i use uh, well i used e trade from 2009 until last year and um, the first time i sold e trade was when i moved away from it so basically i held stocks for for almost 8 years uh, I, I bought when I invested, but I never sell hmm. the, my strategy is buy and hold and Do not try to time the market because you can't because nobody can so um, That's the basic idea um, you just p- Put the money in it's the time you're in the market not 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 when you get in or out of it that matters uh, but last year I switched to um, a robot trader called personal capital uh, because it was too much effort for me to rebalance my portfolio. So when, when you make a portfolio, some sectors or stocks will grow more than others, and so it will grow unbalanced. So, for example, tech has been more successful than other market sectors, and so it had more of a share in my portfolio than, let's say, utilities. And so what you have to do then is rebalance. So you have to sell some tech stocks, buy some utility or, or whatever, consumer goods, stocks, et cetera. So if you use um, a tra- uh, a broker where you have to buy and sell digital stocks, rebalancing is on you, which which you can do. It's not too difficult. But um, I wanted to focus my career, not worry about looking at the market mm. and take the emotion out of it. So there's a new um, category of of um, brokers that are called robot traders that will do all the rebalancing and optimize investments for you, meaning that, uh, they do things such as tax-loss harvesting, where they sell stocks that have lost, lost the most value first to minimize your tax liability. Mm-hmm. And a bunch, a bunch of other similar strategies, which are not designed to time the market, but just to have a optimally, optimize the best portfolio in terms of having it well diversified in the market sectors that you're interested in, and um, so that you pay the least tax on it. And so I've done that for a year and a half, and um, I've gotten gains of twenty seven percent which is pretty good uh, <laughs> for 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 less than a year and
0: a half um, yeah so i I've always had this kind of well not always it's sort of developed over time. I don't really do anything in the stock market. I kind of have this approach that I want my resources to go. Disproportionately to the things that I have the most control over and unique ability in. And then, you know, the things that I have the least control over or the least unique advantage that I bring to the table, I want the least resources in. So I've never really spent a lot of time studying stocks. I would rather put my time into to things like my company. And so I don't put a lot of resources into that. You know, I have like an Acorns account with some index fund or something, um, very small amount, but it's, it's basically you know, it's basically a different, a different savings account. Mm-hmm. What is your, I tend to feel like the stock market is overly, it's just automatically assumed that this is a perfect place that everyone should have a lot of money and should always be putting money into, you know, some kind of mutual funds, some stocks of some kind. And I kind of, I kind of question that. I feel like if, if you don't, maybe if you don't have anywhere else to put it um, you know, I guess it's probably better to put it in index fund and bet on the growth of, of, you know, the the market as a whole, rather than putting it in a savings account and not really earning anything, uh, although it is less liquid. But, but I kind of question this idea that everyone, because it it almost feels like there's a philosophical problem that Mm -hmm. feeds into this idea that I should just automatically get wealthier because the world kind of owes it to me. And as long as I do the right things, Mm. which used to be like, get a degree, get a house, get a 401k, all of those things are only going to go up in value and I'll be good to go. Um, and it's sort of a, a passive approach. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, what are your thoughts on, do you, do you think, are you a huge advocate of getting involved in investing in the stock market? Or do you think you do it because you have some unique insight and knowledge there? Um, how do you approach that? Or how would you recommend other people approach that?
1: Sure. Well, let's talk at the highest level. You know, Over a course of your lifetime, um, most people have a job where you're working every day or most days to turn an income and um, you know, you're earning some assets that you have to use to, to enjoy life Um, which is okay. But I would prefer to um, have financial independence, meaning that I didn't have to work every day and I had the freedom to do what I enjoyed, whether it earns money or not. And so I think that that's a valuable goal. Or, or that's a valuable destination. To be in a state where um, you can do whatever you want, whatever you enjoy doing in life. And so the question is, how do you get there? How do you get in a place where you don't have to go to, to a job every day um, just so you can have food and, and, and money to, to enjoy life? And you could do that by starting a business, by spending all your time and effort and surplus money uh, that you don't use to live, to start a business that generates income. And I think that's a perfectly, you know, that's an awesome goal, and many people should do that, um, but, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody should be an entrepreneur and start a business. Um, so if that's not your goal in life, and you still want to be in a position where you don't have to go every day to a job, then you need to f- generate assets that, that generate revenue, whether or not you're actively working them or not. Maybe I should rephrase that. You need, you need to build a revenue stream that, that's not you going to a job five days a week for so eight hours.
0: An, an income that doesn't rely entirely on the number of hours that you put in. Yes,
1: exactly. And that could be the stock market. could could be a business that you have on the side. Uh, maybe you, have, you flip houses. Maybe some kind of other kind of real estate. Um, the stock market I like because it requires a very little effort on, on my time, very little expertise. All I have to do is save some money with every paycheck, put it in the stock market, and in under 20 years, I don't have to have a job anymore. That's really all it takes, but 20 years, and you can quit your job forever. doesn't mean you don't make any money. It means that you do whatever you enjoy doing and not things you have to do uh, because you need money every every month. And I think the stock market... We, there's no guarantees in, the, in life in anything, in a business or real estate or the stock market. But historically, it's been very reliable in returning 7 point something percent every year over the long run. And unless, you know, nobody knows the future, but I think it's a pretty safe bet that if you follow a good strategy, um, you will be able to achieve financial independence in about 20 years. You know, if you're able to follow um, good financial practices, namely keeping a high savings rate, not trying to time the market, etc. I don't think there's a lot of skill required. I don't think you have to be a financial expert. You just need to have some discipline in your personal life and your spending habits, and in um, your investing strategy.
0: So, if someone is a good saver and they've got that high savings rate, um, and they say all right i, I want to get in i want to get some some money in the stock market david what what should i do what would you recommend to somebody who ha- doesn't really have a lot of knowledge about it and they want to kind of have a minimal uh, amount of maintenance required what would you recommend that they do
1: so um, i would suggest you open up a portfolio in a robot trader such as wolffront or betterment or ius personal capital but they have a minimum of 100,000 um, so one of the robot traders, and there's guides online that you can read about which one is best for you, but probably it's going to be one of those three. Um, And they will allocate it for you. They're going to ask you about your risk tolerance, your income, when you want to retire, and they'll do the rest. Basically, it's going to be um, a a diversified portfolio of either individual stocks or ETFs, low-cost index funds, about 60% U.S. stocks, um, but twenty five percent or so are international, and the rest an alternative such as real estate, and that's 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 pretty much the ideal portfolio in my mind, and um, yeah, th- that's all. You just you just buy and hold it until you need the money.
0: So you know, this is interesting, David, because you have you obviously have a lot of confidence and optimism, and just looking at the historical trend that. The stock market is a is a you know great place to put money. It's probably going to to grow and do well for you over the long term, um, but you don't have this kind of bullish cheerleader, overly you know it's all going to the moon no matter what. I, I remember a post you had recently, and you're going to have to help me with the details mm-hmm. here. I think it was a bad was a chart of like the Nikkei index. The, the Nikkei index, the, yeah. the,
1: the thirty year return, yeah. yet is, is still fifty percent of of the high. And the 19, 1985 or something.
0: So, so if you had money in, invested there in 1985, you still haven't You, still haven't you gotten have back half. to – you, you yeah. have half of what you had then even after – so I mean that's a pretty long time frame. I guess that's a humbling reminder that this is not automatic and if your entire life plan is based on getting a certain return in 20 years, you might want to be more diverse, diversified than that.
1: Yeah. My life plan for being successful is to have valuable skills, to be clear. It's not how much money I have in my account. You know, something could happen. I could lose it all tomorrow, but I'm not going to be devastated because I have valuable skills and give me 10 years and I'll earn most of it back. Hmm. So, um,
0: yeah, like you did (laughs) after 2008, (laughs) like I did. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's a great, I thought that was such a cool post to see because from seeing you advocating, you know, saving a lot, investing a lot, And to see that reminder that, hey, there's there's no guarantee if you had all this money, you know, in 1985, you'd still, you know, you still haven't recovered. (laughs) You're at half of it. So um, that's I thought that was pretty, pretty powerful. I did not know that prior to that. Let's talk about some of the some of the myths that young people, especially professional myths in terms of job, career, personal finance, um, things like home ownership. You have a great blog post. Saying that your job should be your primary focus, mm-hmm. which is not in vogue right now. Every conference I, I go to, you know, they have some really successful startup founder or CEO and they say, What are your keys to success? And they always say something like, you know, dancing and yoga and taking mm-hmm. enough time for myself. Now, of course, once you've you know been a workaholic for 20, 30 years and, and you know, made a, a billion-dollar company and had an exit and whatever then it's easy for you to realize, man, I'm going to burn myself out. I need to, I need to meditate every day. I need to do all these things later in life. Or once you have a family, wow, it's really important to make time for these things. But I think it's really misleading young people just coming on to the, to the job market. They're, in my opinion, way too concerned about having a balanced life between work and personal life. And all. and I loved this post on make your job, your primary focus. Can you talk a little bit about that and what, what spurred that? Yeah. I mean,
1: if young people everywhere were, were doing some kind of transcendental meditation and writing great novels and doing something really awesome with their life instead of working, you know, if, if that's your thing, if you if you are planning to hike up Mount Everest, by all means, go ahead. But most young people are not, in fact, uh, focused on something that they're passionate about. You know, even if you play video games eight hours a day, probably not that passionate about it. Um, I think the important thing is to have a passion in your life, something that is really driving you to achieve every day. Uh, that's what matters. That that's what makes you successful. It doesn't matter what it is. You have to find a passion. And um, the the best thing is if that passion, you know, has some short term return for you. So I think um, the natural thing is to have a passion in your career, whatever that is. Um, that that's the best way for most people to be successful.
0: Yeah, I, I the number of Employees who think about their work, you know, all day and all night, and are focused on improving, you know, whatever company they work for. It's so small, and you can have mm-hmm. such a huge edge, and just kind of letting yourself get absorbed in it, get wrapped up in it, get excited by the challenge. I think it's tremendously underrated. I mean,
1: I interview tons of people uh, in my job, and I always ask them, you know, w- what's your career goal? What do you want to do? And the vast majority. Are just doing. Are just talk to me because you know it's it's that stage in their life when they have to interview, because they've gone to school and or they're still in school, and now it's time to get a job and and that's their motivation. They have no other interest or passion in life, or they only care about the role that they're interviewing for, and and that's terrible. You know that that sets up for a lifetime of working a job that you hate. Um, so the point of the thing is to be passionate about your career and, and uh, just have you know, spiritually something that, that rewards you. Um, it's not about how many hours you spend. It's about um, having something that you value and work towards. And if there's something else that's not your job that makes you happy, then by all means pursue that. But most young people are, are not, in fact, doing something that's
0: intensely spiritual and rewarding in their life. So the dominant narrative... Of here, here is the recommended path to career and life success for young people. It goes something like: get the best grades you can through school, get into the best college you can, and get a degree that will give you a really good chance at getting some kind of job that you enjoy and that you know has a high pay. And then go and interview. You know, make your resume great, get that job, uh, save. You know, put have a four hundred one k, buy a house, and work your way up saving and you know upgrading your Mm -hmm. house each step along the way if that's the prevailing kind of here's here's the recommended path to success what would be david vexler's recommended path to success for young people maybe somebody's 17 18 what would you tell them to think about uh along their path
1: so let me tell you how i got started writing about financial advice Uh, i had a friend and you know i won't go into too much detail but but this friend was complaining that she could not uh, shop for Amazon Prime Day, which is a big discount day that Amazon has, because you know, the, the payday was too far away. So there's a number of problems with that idea. Um, first of all, you shouldn't have your savings so low that you couldn't afford um, to shop at Amazon. But when I think of shopping at Amazon as spending you know, $10, $20 on something I need, her idea was you know, I spend hundreds of dollars every month. To buy things because they make me feel happy. And uh, that's why I don't have any savings every month. So, so, so that's really what got me started in writing about all this uh, when I got back to the US. Uh, okay, a little, a little more background. So I lived in China for five years and um, I could only take two suitcases to China and two suitcases back because it's very expensive or $10,000 to move a household uh, internationally without having corporate sw- sponsorships. And so I learned minimalism in China and I learned that. Um, having more stuff doesn't make you happy. You don't have a job, so you can buy more stuff. And so that, that's really the key to boosting my savings rate. Um, you have a job because you know, it's something that, that enables financial independence, something that you enjoy doing, something that opens up all kinds of opportunities. But it's not so you can buy a bunch of stuff every day. That stuff is not what's making you happy. And many young people see their, uh, their life as, I will have a job, so I can buy more stuff every month to make me happy and then I get on social security, whatever, and then I retire. Um, <laughs> I just don't see it that way. I, I have a job for maybe 20 to 30, 30 years, so I can be independent and do whatever makes me you know, happy full-time, but um, I don't have a job so I can buy stuff. That doesn't make me happy. When Amazon Prime Day happens, I don't suddenly jump on and say, you know, let's buy a ton of stuff, because I just don't value that. I buy things when they break, when I find new things. So anyway, as far as path oh, no. in life,
0: Go ahead. It, it,
1: it, my recipe is, you know, be a rock star to job, be successful, make opportunities, build connections, build your income, have a high savings rate, and then work towards making your money work for you so you can do full-time whatever makes you happiest.
0: So how do you balance, you, you've got um, a family and you have this a full-time job that uh, I know you're very passionate about, you know, the work at fee, what they do and your specific work there. And then according to your Facebook post anyway, you actually fund your life from side gigs. How do you balance doing work in addition to that full-time job and having a family? And what's your what's your process? Are you going out and actively looking for these or are these things that are just coming to you based on a network that you have? How does that work? So I'm gonna make a small correction.
1: Currently um, 66% of my um, income from my day job is invested. So I still need a small percentage. Okay. Uh in addition to my side gigs to live, but I'm working towards well and at, at times it has been 100% of my primary job that goes directly into investments. How do, how do I do it is so far it's been just word of mouth. Uh people that like my work uh, get make recommendations and I've been working as a freelancer um since 2003 before I got my first uh real full-time job. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what the what the secret is is just If you're you're good at what you do, you get recommendations. Now, time management is definitely something that's been difficult, something that's been stressful. And recently, I've started um, subcontracting a lot of work Mm -hmm. on uh, freelance websites to other developers just so I can have more family time.
0: Do you say no to freelance work that comes your way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I like
1: to have maybe two or three clients at a time Uh, Because that's all that I have time for with a full-time job.
0: So I want to ask you a little bit about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Um, I saw in one of your posts, you mentioned that you had actually built a... Bitcoin exchange at one point and then sort yes. of got bored with it and walked away. And uh, you were you were calculating how much you could have had had you stayed involved in it. Uh, t- tell me what got you interested in crypto and, and what sort of made you leave it. And then what do you think of it now? Is this an avenue where people should think about putting some of their wealth as well? Or do you think that's a horrible place to be treating it as a speculation market? What are your thoughts?
1: I got into Bitcoin because... I first read about it in 2010, early on, and I started mining it in 2010. And I, I gave up because uh, I just got distracted with something else before actually mining Bitcoin, to my great regret today. Um, but back then I saw that um, a cryptocurrency had this great opportunity to let individuals you know, keep value and trade value without the government, snooping and taking a part of it around the world. And we think, think the U.S. is bad. Many countries are far worse in Africa and Asia um, in terms of the, the, the regulations, interventions and barriers that the government puts up to, to running a business and, you know, just being able to hold value. And so that's, that's, that's why I care about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency in general. Um, so, yeah, I had an opportunity in 2013 to start an exchange. Unfortunately, I think I dropped out of that a little too early and didn't really <laughs> earn any Bitcoin from that. But I did start investing um, in Bitcoin around that time and I don't uh, talk about it much because I think it's a bad idea to talk publicly about how much Bitcoin you have for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as, as far as the question of should you get into it now, um, I would not actually. I think it's overpriced. I think there's probably a bubble, but you know, who knows? I would be very careful if you're going to buy a highly speculative asset. You should do dollar-cost averaging. You should um, take whatever money you have to invest and spread it over time to minimize your risk. Hmm. So if you want to get into it, that's what I suggest you do. And actually, um, you know, I'm not somebody that really wants to speculate in any asset, stock market, or cryptocurrency. I prefer to buy and hold over a long time. So that's what I'm actually doing. uh, I bought some a number of years ago, and I'm going to hold it. Until I'm either, you know, filthy rich or it goes down to nothing.
0: Yeah, I think dollar cost averaging is a that that's how I have approached. I mean, I do very, very little uh, either in stocks or Bitcoin, but just for me, the mental burden of trying to be active is just too much. Like I don't want my moods and my emotions to change based on market ups and downs that are out of my control. Mm-hmm. and and if i know i just have an automatic you know every week a uh, certain amount gets you know pulled out of my checking account and goes to you know whether it's crypto or stock investments or whatever um, i just know it's on autopilot and i know that there's it's going to whether the market's up or down there's going to be a steady building there and and just the forget the financial side there's there's sort of a mental or psychological um overhead that is reduced by not having to think about it and not having to let my emotions change as the market does. Yeah. My
1: core competency as individual is technology or marketing or whatever it is. It's not speculating on Bitcoin. And I don't want to delegate any more mind space and time to that than I have to. Yeah. Um, so as long as I'm well diversified, I'm just just going to hold on to it until I need the money.
0: So. Man, we we're not even going to have time to get into. There were some, <laughs> you had a whole couple posts about uh, whether or not we're living in a simulation, um, mm-hmm. which was some really interesting stuff. I, I find that a fascinating topic. I noticed that you do not follow the news. Uh, I don't either. Um, what what prompted that decision, and when did you decide to sort of turn off the daily news feed?
1: I got rid of my television in 2010, and there's not been a time when I've. Really thought that hey man, I should watch more TV. Um, it just saves so much time, and not following politics and news just make it so, makes you makes you much more productive. Just eliminates the time you spend watching TV and the news, eliminates the time you spend thinking about it, and you can actually focus on what actually makes a, a difference in your life. Yeah, um, not, now no, I can't gosh. get away entirely because I I work in marketing for a nonprofit that writes about ideas and I do some writing. So I have to follow it some extent, but if it were up to me, if I weren't in this job, I would not follow it at all.
0: That's probably, that's probably either first or second most highest return life, uh, activity that I changed that I've made Mm -hmm. turning off the news. uh, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, absolutely massively wonderful and life changing. And then blogging every day uh, was the other one. Um, Speaking of that, so what is your what are your patterns of consumption? You're clearly a, a polymath. You're interested in a lot of things. Um, you're, you're reading a lot of things and you're writing about a lot of things. Do you have a certain process or pattern for consumption? You try to read a certain amount or listen to podcasts? Do you try to listen to certain topics or do you just sort of follow your interest with whatever free time you have? And then on the creation side, do you have certain goals for how often you want to write a blog post or, um, you know, share some of the things we discussed on Facebook.
1: As far as consumption, my approach is to, to, to do a deep dive. So if I care about something like I wrote about how I got into photography and for three months I did nothing but photography. I, I read photography books. I watched the, uh, tutorials from the best photographers in the world. I got a better camera. Um, and then I, you know, I learned how to do it and then I moved on. So I don't follow an interest over a course of years. I prefer to do a deep dive, become not an expert in somebody that's competent at something and then move on to something else. And I just add that to my tool belt. Now I can take you know, decent photos of my kids um, and so on. So I'm not somebody that will just read, uh, listen to podcasts on a regular basis. I prefer, um, you know, I do enjoy reading books and I try to read a book you know, at least once a month But I prefer to pick one topic and become um, an expert or at least somebody knowledgeable about it. So now I have that under my tool belt, and I'll move on.
0: What's your deep dive topic right now? Do you have anything uh, that you're exploring? Um, I'm trying to finish my
1: my book on how to be a millionaire by 40. And so I'm doing some market research, reading other writing on this. Um, That's an ongoing project. Um, I'm also busy because I have this new role in marketing, just learning marketing strategy, marketing automation, et cetera. Those some are currently my two areas.
0: Okay. So this, this parlays into the creation side of things. Uh, you're writing a book. I didn't know that. That's really cool. I <laughs> <laughs> excited for that to, to come out. What is your, uh, what's your structure for, do you have certain goals or demands on yourself of how much you kind of produce not non-related to work, you know, the blogging and, and the book that you're working on? Um, yes. So I believe it's important to write every day because I I believe for
1: sure it's important to, um, have some ratio of creation to consumption. So, so for every unit of uh, consumption or maybe every two units of consumption should be one unit of creation. So I I could um,
0: not agree more. That is such a powerful, uh, such a powerful, um, you know, I don't know what to process or ratio mm -hmm. to consider. How much are you creating for every bit of consumption? Because
1: ultimately, you can be the, the most genius, brilliant person in the world with totally groundbreaking ideas. But if you don't communicate them, you know, I, will, well, I won't say it's meaningless, but it's not ultimately going to change the world. It won't change your life. So I believe that it's important to, you know, when you have a great idea, write it down. And I try to write something every day. Uh, could it just be a Facebook status, but I try to write something uh, meaningful, something new every day.
0: Um, and is and it I think, always publicly facing or is it, do you have a private journal or place where you write things sometimes that you don't share?
1: I, I try to share as much as possible. So, you know, when I contributed the book, it's not public yet, but it will be, mm-hmm. but I try to make it public. And because I write on so many different topics, it's tough because I have now like five different blogs in different areas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but writing is important. Um, I'm able to talk to you now and have meaningful ideas because I've experienced. Trying to get my thoughts into words, and that was very tough for me because you know I grew up being extremely shy, had a major stuttering problem, and um, I had to learn recently I would say in how to take a lot of thoughts I had, which are pretty good, and convert into words. And people that don't write on a regular basis um, struggle with that. So I think it's important to try to write something, even if it's you know post on Facebook about what you ate, but hopefully. You know, more interesting
0: uh, every single day. So, if I were to check back with you ten years from now, twenty twenty-seven, uh, what would you be up to? Where would you be?
1: <laughs> I, you know, I don't plan that far ahead. That's beyond my planning horizon. I can make financial projections. You know, that that's easy. If the economy is not a disaster, then I should be financially independent. Could still be working the same job, but it will be because I want to and because I enjoy it, not because I need to.
0: So you don't have like a specific goal for, oh, I want to you know, live on a yacht or travel the world or do this for, for achieving a certain amount of money so you can do specific things. It's more just the freedom and flexibility to do whatever seems the most interesting in the short term.
1: Well, I know that I was a different person 10 years ago and 10 years from now, I'll be a different person. Right now, I can tell you that I would like to uh, write a few books hmm. and I do want to travel the world. I, when I lived in Asia for five years, I traveled a lot, and I would like to do that full-time for a few years. Um, I want to get an airplane and, you know, s- s- do do some flying around. Um, you
0: still got it. Forget calculus yeah. and physics. You, you could still fly. I'm still obsessed with planes. I, I
1: do flight simming a lot. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to be a different person from 10 years from now, so I'm not making any bets
0: i'm i'm much the same way uh i don't i don't really think that far <laughs> that far ahead because it's <laughs> too many things change david um where can people find more about you what's the best place for people to go if they want to read all the various things that you're writing about and uh keep up with you
1: oh man because i have a bunch of different blogs but you can go to uh, davidvexler.com, and that will link you to my other digital properties or search for david
0: vexler David, this has been a blast. I appreciate your time and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Awesome, Isaac. Thanks a lot. You bet.